Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of Hospitality TV. I am your host, Rafael Peterson. On today's show, I got to sit down with Jessica Leach, founder and co-winemaker of League of Rogues Winery in Paso Robles. We got to talk a little bit about winemaking and some of the myths surrounding winemaking, such as sulfites in wines if they give you headaches, wine labeling such as organic and sustainable and biodynamic, and a couple of other cool things that I think you guys are going to enjoy. So please tune in, let me know what you think. Most importantly, we featured Jessica's Rapscallion Zinfandel as part of the Hospitality TV Wine Club, which if you don't know about it by now, it's a great wine club that I started within the last couple of months. We feature two wines per month for $50, available for pickup here in San Diego at Bird Rock Fine Wine in La Jolla, or we can also ship in California. And what we've been doing is comparing New World versus Old World varietals. You get a little bit of education. I send out a quick educational video breaking down the wines, and then we do a monthly Zoom happy hour call, like the one that I just did with Jessica, describing a little bit more about the wines and jumping into some fun topics surrounding the wine. So if you need more information on that, please hit me up on DM. You can go to hospitalitv.com slash wine club to sign up for the club. I hope you guys enjoy this episode. Talk to you soon. Okay, cool. Let's do this. Let's start it off. This is our March Zoom happy hour um, where we're going to be drinking wines with Jessica Leach of League of Rogues. How are you doing, Jessica? I'm doing great, Raphael. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Thank you for taking the time. Um, I know you're very busy. You're actually doing things. You're making wine. You're making moves. Um, that's what I appreciated <laughs> the most when I first met you, actually, was your hustle and how much you were coming down um, to San Diego and kind of building the brand. So I'm really glad that you're taking the time to do this. Um, thank you very much. I know it's St. Patty's Day. Uh, so people are out and about partying. Um, we have some hardcore followers here. So like like Melissa, thank you for being here. Appreciate you. <laughs> um, but let's jump right into it because I, then I'd like to, I'm super curious to have this conversation with you being a, a co-winemaker at the winery. Um, I just kind of want to get into some questions about winemaking in general and some of like the myths that we have um, written down here and kind of like to go over. But if you wouldn't mind giving us the quick spiel um, on yourself, Jessica, how you got into founding League of Rogues. And then let's jump into tasting the wine. I kind of want to get your approach on what you feel about the wine. Um, because for the wine club members um, that are on here or that are going to see this video, I've already done this for them, um, the breakdown of the wine. So it's kind of cool to get, obviously, your opinion on your wine. So please take it away. Yes, absolutely. Uh, and I did catch that clip. And I can say that you were pretty much spot on accurate with the description. So yeah, I'll just kind of piggyback and kind of echo a little bit of what you did. Um, but as far as for us, League of Rogues, so we launched in August of 2014. Uh, my first personal harvest was uh, in 2012. Um, currently, we're our 1,200 production winery uh, at Apostle Robles, which is Central Coast, California. Um, we've been able to steadily grow our production each and every year. Just to give you a perspective, um, when we launched in 2014, releasing the 2012 vintage, we started at 260 cases, and so we're now at 1,200 cases. Um, so really kind of steadily growing our production, introducing um, you know new wines into our portfolio, playing with different grapes, different styles. It's just been an absolute blast the past eight years. Um, where we stand today, we uh, specialize in Zinfandel, which is what will be a uh, tasting the, this evening, um, but we also specialize in Rhone varietals like Syrah, Grenache, Mouved, uh, as well as Albarino on the white side. It's one of my personal favorites uh, on, the, on the white side for sure, and we do a little rosé every year as well. Um, 
as far as fruit goes, we do source 100% of our fruit. So we don't own the vineyards that we source from, but we handpick, hand harvest all of our fruit. We truck it back to the winery. Uh, we work directly with the growers of each respective vineyard. Um, so we kind of have full control, full autonomy of when and how we pick our fruit. But as the growers, they obviously control the farming aspect. Um, but I always like to say I would never sign a contract with the vineyard that, you know, it didn't align with our farming practices and our farming beliefs. So it's a super conducive system um, in a way that we do business operationally for, for small producers like myself. Um, one day, why not own a, own a vineyard for sure? But for now, we do source, we bring it back to the winery, and that's where the control kind of happens for us because we write up all of our protocols and, and everything like that. Um, let's see, uh, let's see here. Where else? What else can I tell you? Or, or we can jump into the wine. I can ramble too. So this yeah, is no, let's do it. Let's <laughs> jump into the wine for a second because I, I I already have so many questions about just like how you source fruit from vineyards and things like this. But before we get too off topic, let's start with or not off topic, but just sidetrack. Um, let's start with the wine. Also, cheers, by the way. We didn't do that. Super glad to have you here. Yes, cheers, cheers, wine cheers. Right here. I'm excited. Oh, yeah. I've been running around all day, so it feels nice to kind of sit down and relax and enjoy. <laughs> <laughs> no, I love it. I love it. And uh, trust me, I had nothing more. I would love nothing more than to join you guys. I don't even know if I mentioned this to you, but I am, I've got a little one inside me. I'm expecting. Um, I'm 33 weeks tomorrow, so Ooh. a little over seven. Thank you. Thank you, hon. I, uh, trust me, I'd love to be in your position. I've been abstaining and it's been hard. And, um, it's been a little bit of a challenging, interesting year to say the least. But um, yeah, so a little over seven months down, two to go, ready to rock. Pretty soon I'll be in your shoes once again and, and can't wait. But uh, no, but cheers. I've got a, I've got a bucket. Oh my I've God, cheers to you and congratulations, Jessica. That's thank amazing. You. Thank you. Thank you. I've got a body armor here for hydration mechanisms and you guys have wine. So that's how we'll, we'll cheers. I mean, give us the snippet, give us a quick look into the life of uh, a a winemaker who's expecting. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's, and and that's why, uh, you know, co-winemaker is is so important as as far as my title goes, because um, I don't do everything by, by no means. And I've got a great team in Paso uh, that's helped me out more so than any other year, probably Uh, just due to my condition. um, I found out I was pregnant two weeks before the launch of harvest last year. Um, My husband and I are thrilled we were ecstatic, but we were like, really now? So, um, but uh, that's kind of the story. I've had to take some trips off out of the winery just to kind of kind of rest and kind of deal with some of the, the pregnancy challenges that do exist. But, um, you know, just a huge thanks to my team in, in the Paso Robles area for, for helping me out and kind of having my back. Um, it's just, it's been a very interesting year. I've been distant a little bit just to, to kind of take care of the body and whatnot. So it has been a different year, uh, but looking forward to getting right back where, where I'm used to uh, this harvest coming up. So uh, that's just, just kind of how it works. It's kind of how life works a little bit. But great people, as with anything in this industry, right, where it's all about having, you know, being surrounded by great people, supportive people, having a great supportive cast. And it's definitely what I've got um, up at the winery. So um, anyways, I, uh, let's, we'll, we'll definitely jump into the wine here. Um, yeah, I mean, congratulations once again. And thank you again oh, thank for you. taking the time while you have all this going on. I really appreciate you. No, it's cool. It's cool. It's all good. I, I'm feeling all right today. So we're, we're fine. Awesome. Uh, so, uh, yeah. So with the wine on, um, you know, and, and you kind of really nailed it again with, with your clips. So uh, number one, Zinfandel at Paso Robles, definitely not a foreign grape. I think it's one of the grapes that that truly thrives in the Paso Robles area. It's one of the reasons why we got into Zin because I felt like it thrives so well. Um, you know, there's a lot of Bordeaux being planted nowadays in Paso and that's okay. That's fine. But I do feel like you know, Zinfandel is one of the grapes that has kind of been around a little bit longer and it's just kind of, 
it's kind of what makes Paso Robles Paso Robles, um, just with its conditions and the microclimate um, and just the, the, the grape overall just kind of thrives. So I, I love Zen out of the Paso Robles area. It's super conducive growing conditions for it. Um, kind of mentality-wise, focus-wise, what we like with our Zen uh, is, is an approachable style Zen uh, that emphasizes that red berry fruit. So red raspberry, cherry, yes, it's going to be kind of more on the robust, opulent side because that's what you kind of get in warmer climates like Paso. Um, but you're, the emphasis is more red berry fruit than dark berry fruit like blackberry, boysenberry. Um, I am a fan of Zen that has you know depth, com complexity, and some, some layers to it. So hopefully that's what you get with this wine here. You're going to have fruit up front, and then you're going to have kind of a silky concentration. You're going to have a little bit of oak. Um, you're going to have a little bit of finesse to it. Um, a little bit of licorice that, that you mentioned. I absolutely agree with that as well. Granted, it's been a while since I've had the wine, but when I recall the last time, absolutely, I think those those are kind of the shining characteristics for it. Um, well, Jessica, I, I started to interrupt you real quick. I need to jump in there. And that's one of the things that really uh, attracted me to this wine to put it, to feature it on the wine club um, was, like you mentioned, the layers in the wine, right? I think that's super important. Where I was looking for wine, people ask me like, what's a good wine? What do you think a good wine is? And for me, it's like, obviously it's very subjective right to the one that you're drinking but one thing i can always kind of go to what i like is that there's layers to the wine and that has several dimensions to it so it's not all fruit i think that there's a lot of um without getting right away into bashing any other wineries i think that zin also and maybe you know from a winemaker's point of view you can talk about this at some point um but it can, it can get very overripe at some point and all of a sudden all you have this wine that is incredibly overripe in the bottle and it's just dominated by fruit and you get nothing else from it. Now that might appeal to some people, but again, I think if you're looking to for a wine that has multiple layers and multiple dimensions to it, um, this wine certain, certainly shows that. Yeah, no, that's great. And I can tell you that um, that lack of extraction, uh, because that's okay. So that's exactly what we go for is nothing that's overly concentrated, overly extracted with fruit. And I can tell you how we get that starts at the vineyard and goes through um, our production protocol um, because we typically pick at a little bit lower bricks level than, than most when it comes to Zinfandel. So it's a little bit less ripe. So that's why, again, you get more of a red berry fruit than a dark berry fruit. Um, we also do kind of hold off on, on heavy extraction um, because we believe that there's wine is fruit essentially. Yes. But we feel like we can showcase and highlight other dimensions, other elements to a wine besides just kind of a fruit bomb coming at you that typically is so strong up front but kind of that kind of like depletes and 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 depreciates a little bit towards the end, and you're just like, whoa, that was a little bit too much up front. Uh, what's left, kind of nothing, and it just kind of hits you a little bit too hard initially. So right. we kind of hope that it's overall like structurally very well balanced um, with a lot of layers that that you're alluding to. So, yeah. Um, but yeah, it it starts in the vineyard. You know, we've got complexity in the in the fruit, and then we bring it to the winery where we do a very light crush, a very light press. A little bit of a cold soak, not overly cold soak, just a few days here and there in bins where you really get that that silky concentration. Um, and then we kind of like it goes through fermentation and we kind of barrel age and, and that sort of thing. So um, I don't want to necessarily call this a lean wine, but again, from an extraction standpoint, we were fairly conservative in our approach on that. Can you um, just clarify what you mean by cold soak? Yeah, sure, sure. So um, when, when you bring the fruit to the winery, um, we do 100% de-stem, um, and then you go through kind of a, a crush machine where basically you then begin to separate the juice from the skins and the seeds and, and the musk that come with the grape. Um, and then what we do is when it crushes, it falls into a bin. 
And what we do is instead of going straight to the fermentation tank, we let the juice from the crush machine, as well as the skins and the seeds and the whatnot, we kind of let it soak and macerate in this in these bins for a period of about five to six days. And what that does is it kind of soaks up and absorbs um, all, the, all the flavors of the fruit. And that's what can really enhance the concentration of the wine, where if it just kind of, it's like luscious, like kind of in your mouth. Five to six days. And what that does is it kind of soaks up and absorbs. Sorry, I can hear myself. Sorry about that, hon. Sorry, um, that's okay. Sorry. <laughs> no, we're good now. Now we're back to normal. Um, but yeah, so that's what the that's what the the maceration um, process is in the world of wine. Is you kind of let all the the juice and, and the skins kind of soak in bins for a few days to really help absorb the flavor. Um, so that's that's kind of how the flavor. And that's not a very long. That's not a very long maceration time, right? Compared to a lot of other wines. I mean, you're seeing like Nebbiolos go for 25, 30, 40 days sometimes. Weeks. Maybe Cabernet gets a lot longer time also. That's absolutely. pretty interesting. Absolutely, absolutely. So we, we we cut it a little bit on the short side, but again, that's kind of more so our preference because Zinfandel in and of itself, it, it's a really strong grape. It, you know, it's got a lot of flavor already that, that kind of comes through pretty quickly. So mm-hmm. that's why we're fairly conservative in our approach in that because we so worry about it over extracting. Yeah. What's your take on it being, um, I've actually read into a couple of different things and most, most of the things that I was reading from what I've heard for a while is that it is a, uh, you know, the, the, the Zinfandel and Primitivo, which is the other one that we have on Wine Club this month, are actually genetically um, relatable and from a clone of a Croatian grape, right? And then somebody was telling me, no, that's actually not true. But the majority of things that I have read say the opposite. What's your take on that in your field? Yeah. So, uh, well, my my understanding is you're correct. It's an indigenous grape to Croatia. A lot of people mistakenly think Primitivo Zinfandel comes out of Italy, and there's a lot of Primitivo out of Italy. Um, but um, yeah, no, definitely it comes out of Croatia. You know, I think Zinfandel, uh, when you kind of got into the whole new world versus old world, which I think was your theme for, for the month, mm-hmm. Primitivo was an excellent, was an, is an excellent example, I think, of like kind of an older world mentality. And then you've got the Zen, kind of that new world mentality out of California, um, and uh, other other places that I I feel like really kind of differentiates from a, a winemaking style for sure. Yeah. Uh, but uh, yeah, no, it's is that is that kind of what you're asking? Yeah, hundred percent. I mean, I just like to hear, honestly just hear the confirmation on your end <laughs> as the professional <laughs> to that it is indeed a a fair comparison what we're doing this month. Um, cool. All right, Jessica, let's jump right into it. we want to we want to kind of debunk some of these myths in winemaking and what better person to have than you here. Um, but let's get into one of the the biggest one right away, right? That I like, that I hear a lot about. And let's talk about sulfites in wines. A lot of people are saying, even just the most general one, sulfites give me headaches, right? <laughs> and is that a thing? I'm always kind of curious when people say that. I think that there's a lot of sulfites in the foods that we eat. And, and I think it's really more relatable to the alcohol that people consume versus there being sulfites in the wines. But um, is that a thing? What's your take on that? Yeah, so uh, definitely, it's uh, something I've definitely heard uh, in my years of winemaking. And um, you know, I'll be honest, if I'm ever at a tasting and I have a line of reds out and I'm like, can I pour you some wine? And someone's like, no, I don't drink reds. They give me headaches. Um, it's because of the sulfites. I'll, I'll be honest. I, I almost, I, I kind of respect kind of what they think. I don't necessarily, you know, basically go right in with, with what I feel. But because you're bringing it up tonight, I might as well just kind of give you my two cents on it. Um, it. It, to my understanding, there is no scientific back research saying that sulfites correlate or lead to headaches. Um, 
that it actually more has to do with the grape itself. So uh, the phenolic, um, I forget the term exactly, but it's essentially what they think leads to possible headaches, which actually are like antioxidants, which as we all know, are very good for us. Um, it's the skin, it's the seed, um, it's the, the stems. If you incorporate stems uh, into the production protocol, that potentially can lead to, to some headaches from, from research doing, uh, but you know, sulfates, um, they're, they're kind of a byproduct of, of fermentation, number one. So you're automatically going to be generating them. And then, you know, in red wines, especially, um, if you've got kind of an extensive barrel aging program, um, like we, for example, we, we, we use minimal sulfites, but we, we do use sulfites because if you don't, the wine can go on you and you can get in trouble. So it's, it's what helps keep wine alive, essentially in barrel, because over time, you know, wine kind of evaporates slowly, but surely. Um, so you've got to keep topping the wine. You've got to treat the wine with, with kind of your minimal sulfite, however much you want to do. Um, but again, yeah. So going back to that, like there is no scientific back research stating that it, it's not, you're not getting headaches because of sulfites. Um, it, it's other, other, other factors for sure. Right. Okay, cool. Interesting. Um, let's go into another one I don't want to talk about, which is the labeling in wines today, right? Which can be kind of confusing for people. Um, so I wonder, I want to try to formulate this as a question, but like the labeling that we see outside of marketing even too, because right now what we're seeing is, you know, a lot of brands coming out with clean wines and, and, you know, I don't even know. That's like, that's a big one I've seen, which I don't know if that really means anything at all. It's not held to any legal definition whatsoever, but certainly I'd like to, if you could elaborate a little bit on like organic, maybe sustainable and biodynamic wines, because those are, are some things that we'll see on wine labels, right? And whether or not those wines have sulfites in them, and that's something that the consumer can know about, right? I think that for organic wines, correct me if I'm wrong, I think that your the grapes that are going into those wines have not had any um, any chemical sprayed on them on the grapes, right? But they're still allowed to use some type of sulfites in the winery, is that correct or no? Or there's no sulfites across the board ever? Yeah, uh, well, it, there there could be a case where there is no sulfites um, used, and that has to be specifically displayed on a label. So um, it's funny. So my our, our newest wine that we have coming out in, the, in a few months when we were creating the label, it's a it's an actual it's natural Syrah uh, from a biodynamic vineyard, and on the back of the label, I wanted to personally say minimal sulfites used, but I that according ATB. It's either sulfites used or sulfites are used. There is no in-between. Um, so, you know, with, with organic wines that I, people claim um, that they don't use sulfites, that, 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 that could be true. Absolutely. Um, I know like for our label, because we used minimal sulfites, we had to go to the, to the route of like, you know, sulfites are used or sulfites are, are included, something like that. Um, in that case, then you can't do uh, yeah. Pardon? What's that? Then if you do use sulfites to some degree in the winery, not even outside in the vineyard, but in the winery, once you use sulfites, you cannot call your wine organic. Is that correct? So a lot of times, I think when people write, when they put down like organic uh, on a label, it has to do with the farming practices. It has right. to do with the certain vineyard. Um, not so much what happens in the production protocol at the winery, so to speak. Um, most likely if it's organic on the, on the production side of things, 
uh, they do a natural wild fermentation. Okay, so um, it's not a controlled fermentation, which means they don't use any yeast. It's just wild kind of out in, out in nature is kind of how they, how they produce it. Um, there's no chemicals, no additives. And to the winery's discretion, they can say no sulfites. I don't really know if I believe that wholly. Like I feel like a little bit of sulfites are going into it, but who's going to know, honestly, right? But right. Um, the most part, like if you if it says organic, they that winery probably also claims that they didn't use any sulfites as well. But we don't really know. Well, that's super interesting, right? Because I think like and the amount of sulfites has kind of been interesting too, right? Because you'll see some things that. Um, you know, when you compare it to other food products that are out in the market, for example, and they, I think like dried fruits and nuts are the worst, right? They have like over 2000 parts per million of sulfites and, and yet nobody's complaining about that ever. And I think, you know, some certain, some wines we're seeing are having between, and correct me if I'm wrong, but like between like 50 and 300 parts per million. Um, you know, what's the threshold there of saying, well, what, like, what is minimal sulfites used? You know, is, is that like, you know, 50 to 100? Does it even matter at this far? Are we, are we just, you know, splitting hairs at this point between something that's up to 100 parts per million versus 250 parts per million? Are these levels yeah, unhealthy yeah. for you? I mean, it's just right, it's right. such a yeah, big conversation. Yeah. People shy away from it so aggressively when like, really, we might be talking about, yes, sulfites are used minimally, like you're saying, and they really wouldn't have any health complications on anybody, especially if they're consuming everything else that exists in the market right now. Right, right. And I think in large part, I mean, we're just absolutely in this health kick, health conscientious world right now, um, where the less we can, you know, um, put into our foods from a, from a process standpoint, the, the better it is for you. So people kind of translate that and they think, oh, okay, well, wine, well, what's in wine? Right. Um, and people always talk about like every single ingredient that goes into wine. Um, so I think that all this kind of correlates and, and, and kind of tailors all together. Um, you know, it's all I can say is that it's a very minimal difference between us at minimal and, and someone else that says no sulfites. It, it's hardly, hardly a difference. Um, we truly mean minimal and that's only to, to, to keep the wine alive, to make sure it doesn't go. So we have the ability to ultimately share it with you um, for sure. There are some wineries, and, and I'll tell you what we don't do, you know, additives and chemicals. I think people are more um, wanting to know about that aspect than really the sulfites. And, and I can tell you that we don't use any additives or chemicals in any of our wines um, because that's where we feel like eh, that's a no-no. We can, we can produce a fantastic wine without it. I don't feel like it needs it. I think we take enough care, um, to not have to make those types of adjustments. Um, and so... You know, and I, when I have conversations with people about sulfites, it kind of turns into chemicals because they think ultimately that is an additive and, and mm. technically it, it can be. Um, but once people understand like why sulfates are begin with, people kind of warm up to the idea of like, oh, okay, they're a little bit more receptive to it. So, I mean, that's, and I'm about to go down the rabbit hole with you and I love it, but like, that's an interesting, wait, what are additives? Because I think that that's the thing that people don't, like they'll, they'll categorize into a whole group and I was, you know, I, I've quoted this book before on one of these Zooms. I'm just super obsessed with it. But like Cork Dork, I don't know if you've read that book um, by Bianca Bosker, but she goes into like all of these different facets of the wine business and from the restaurant side to like, she, at one point in, in, in the book, she goes to like this, like a convention of winemakers basically 
where they're basically allowed to, or where they purchase all of the things that they're allowed to put into, legally allowed to put into wines, especially a lot of the mass market wines um, that are on the market. And, you know, just the coloring agents, like adjusting tannins, adjusting acidity, adjusting alcohol, like all of these things would fall under the category of um, additives, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. There's there's thousands of different types of additives out there that that you can do, and and absolutely, that's what they they help enhance the color, they help enhance the flavor that you're going for. If it's something that you don't like, you can get naturally, um, and uh, you know, just people. It's 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 kind of a it's a way for you to kind of cheat a little bit, um, if you will, to if it's something that you really want that you feel like you can't get naturally again, it's like, it's like, well, let's just, let's just add a little bit of this. And I think it'll fix the problem. Um, so right. that's just, that is, that is, that is a route that, that, that some people try to go. We obviously try to avoid that at all costs. Um, and uh, I think the smaller batch, the smaller producers out there who have a little bit more control over the wine, as opposed to the bigger guys who have gallons and gallons of wine to work with, it's, it's much harder to control the, the flavor profile and the characteristics. So they might resort to a little bit of that route more so than people like in my field that, you know, I never like to produce more than what I feel I can handle and I can control. And so um, that's why we, I feel like we don't really need that. Are any of those things potentially more dangerous to a consumer than sulfites? I mean, they're legally allowed in the wine without having any type of boundaries and labeling that they have to adhere to. Yeah. Uh, I, I, mean. I, I can. Admit, yeah. No, it's funny because you're also talking to a health nut as well. So um, I, I just, I'm a believer in what you put in your body matters. Uh, I would be the biggest hypocrite ever if I put a bunch of chemicals and additives into my, into my wine to, to serve to people. But, um, you know, I think here's, here's kind of one very popular additive that kind of is the winemaking joke of the, of, of the industry. And that's the mega purple. So it's, it's, it's basically this additive that if like the wine color isn't where, where you want it to be, you can add this substance mega purple and it all of a sudden darkens the wine for you. Um, and it just kind of enhances the color. Uh, I have no idea. And you pour it into a big glass and people are like, oh my God, look at the color of that wine. Yeah. It's so amazing. It's so dark and beautiful. It's, yeah, it's incredible. So if you if the wine if the grapes come off too lean and the color's too light, you're like, well, let's just add some mega purple. Yeah. And it literally brightens up the darkens up the wine. Um, I can't tell you what exactly is in mega purple. I've never personally used it, but that's an additive right there that kind of helps you kind of compromise a little bit of like kind of like what you're looking to do color wise to a wine that some people are doing. We we just we just haven't done it. So right. I can't I. I can honestly tell you that mega purple is far worse for you than sulfites. That that I do believe. Oh wow! Okay, wow, that's the first time I've heard that. Because I think we know a lot yeah. of bigger brands in the market that are 100% using that, and they don't have Most to do like, that. Right? Yeah, that's uh, never something you have to disclose. <laughs> yeah, and it would be very hard pressed to find out about unless you knew somebody who went to the winery or had spoken to the winemaker or was somehow involved in the winemaking process. You know, you would never know. Yeah. Just maybe one person might knows and it's yeah, nothing to disclose. So you would never know. Yeah. That is, um, that's pretty crazy. So how let's, so we talked about organic, let's talk about sustainable. What does that mean is sustainability in winemaking again, I think maybe applies more towards, um, the vineyard management than the actual winemaking process in the winery. 
Correct. Yes. Yes. So sustainable in practice has a lot to do. It's a farming practice um, that we choose to to contract with because we believe in. Um, not only does it serve the environment well, but economically as well. Um, so all of our vineyards, for example, irrigate. Some some vineyards decide to go more dry farm uh, where they don't use any kind of help kind of like stress out the vines, if you will. And, and those lead to absolutely great wines. But, um, you know, I believe in like a little bit of irrigation just to help keep the crop very healthy and hydrated. Um, let's see what else, um, you know, no, uh, sustainable in practice. They still, they don't, they don't really spray or do anything with like bugs or anything like that. Um, but just from like a, like a, like when I say economical, obviously we're all familiar with the California drought that we've had for years. And so, we're, you know, they're telling farmers, like, don't use water. Like, we don't have any water. You're wasting our water. It's like, well, it's, it's more of a necessity for, 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 for this crop here. It, it needs it. It's stressed out. It's dehydrated. Um, so that, that's like kind of like the main difference. It was sustainable in practice. We focus, we embrace the environmental aspects, but we also think of it from an economics, economical standpoint as well. Of what's in the best interest of, you know, us from an econ- you know, economic standpoint. Right. Are there any guidelines or certifications for sustainability or sustainable practices in winemaking? Yeah. So as a vineyard, and again, I don't really know the specifics because we don't own the vineyard, but Mm -hmm. uh, I can tell you that every vineyard that we source from is certified SIP. So there is a process that you can go through, whether it be the state or more nationally recognized, um, where you can get that certification. Absolutely. I thought that was more for um, organic. Was it SIP or certified or uh, SIP organic or is that SIP sustainable? Sorry, am I confusing those? That's for so, sustainability yeah. versus organics? Correct, correct. So certified SIP, yeah. so certified sustainable in practice. And then there's right. certified organic, and there's also certified biodynamic. So there's right. there's different certifications. I'm just only more familiar with the SIP. Yeah, and then, so, you, and so you're dealing with vineyards that have these certifications, for example, SIP, sustainable, or, and are they, you don't own them, but you're buying fruit from them, but they have to, are they basically absorbing the cost associated with becoming certified sustainable right yes. and then they're selling you these grapes at a, somewhat of a higher price that's the other thing that we hear sometimes too is that well we would be organic but we don't want to pay the money to be organic mm-hmm. yeah quite possibly um you know those are good questions you're probably touching on subjects that i personally don't know a ton about just because i don't know a whole lot about like vineyard management or vineyard practices or anything like that um because we mostly handle like the actual wine making side but right. Yeah, absolutely. As with any sort of certification, I'm sure there's some sort of, you know, financial, um, you know, commitment that you have to kind of put forth every year. Um, maybe it's more expensive to, to farm an organic farm as opposed to a sustainable in practice. I'm, I'm truthfully not, not too sure, but yeah, I'm sure it's, I'm sure it costs money and uh, it's kind of, kind of your preference, you know, how, how you prefer to farm. Right. That's interesting. Um, I know it's funny. I just, I, I again, I wish that there were I wish that they would make it easier for people to 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 attain those. Like not easier, but I guess more affordable to attain those certifications. You know, so there's a lot of times what we hear too is like, oh yeah, these guys, these guys are pretty much organic. They're they're pretty much sustainable. I'm like, what, what does that mean? I mean, I mean, <laughs> they pretty much would do it if they had to like this. I'm like, okay, that's that's a little vague, you know. Even when we're talking to people, um, who are in the conversation about the wine, so. It's just interesting, but I mean, even for somebody like yourself, like, you know, you don't, you're saying no additives or preservatives or things like this, and 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 yet you don't need to label it on your wine, right? But yet we know that that's how you go about doing your wine. So it's really almost in the best interest of, I mean, having these conversations 
right to see how people are making their wines and hopefully yeah. they're not putting too much stuff in it. There's There's been this ongoing conversation for sure, and rightfully so with consumers because food labels, they're they're pretty transparent nowadays and, and, and as they should be. Um, but with wine, we have a way, there's, you know, we have a way to, to be a little bit more That's discreet. Really Oops, I'm sorry. I got to put that down. My bad. Oops. Okay. <laughs> um, but yeah. And I, so I think as a consumer, I think it's fair. I think it's fair to ask the winemaker or whoever it might be like pouring the wine, like what's your process? Like what's your philosophy? Like what's in this wine? Because yeah. um, food, we're getting a lot more, there's a lot more, like it's heavier regulated, right? Like on labels and wrappers, like you have to basically tell people like what's in this, what's in this product? Like right. why should, why should wine be any different? Like, why are we allowed to be a little bit more on the discreet side? So, uh, and I believe in full transparency. So I, you know, I, I wouldn't be opposed if, if all of a sudden yeah. labels now require like full discretion of, of, of what, what's in this wine or right. how, how many, exa- how much sulfites exactly went into this was there an additive use uh, as a, as a way to, to, to adjust something like, absolutely. Like, why not? Yeah. Okay. Let's go into myth number four. And you touched on this a little bit. So I'm kind of excited for you to talk about this because um, this is all the hype in the wine world, especially with sommeliers, right? Like people can't get past, like no sommelier wants to have a mass production wine on their list. Right. So myth number four, small production wines, AKA smaller estate wines are always better than a larger estate wine is that true and to where is like maybe the threshold of what constitutes a smaller estate versus a larger estate yeah yeah um to me when you ask me that it's uh, my answer is not necessarily because there's there's so many talented winemakers out there and it, it it I think it comes down to what that winemaker's threshold is so I mean I can tell you I've been doing this since 2012 um, the one thing I learned a long time ago in the wine world is you're forever a student. And there is so much more that I don't know than I know today. And I know what my threshold is. And I can tell you right now, like if I ran a 5,000, you know, case production winery, I would call myself a mass producer that almost like, I don't know if I could handle that per se. So I, but I do think there's winemakers out there that have like 10, 15, 20,000 cases that they're rolling out producing every year that are fantastic wines, but somehow they're labeled mass production because they're that quantity. Um, so I really think it boils down to the winemaker, you know, experience, absolutely their team around them uh, and what their specific threshold is. And, um, you know, because you do see a lot of wines, kind of a lot of the same wines like out there for sure, but they've got the volume, but it doesn't necessarily mean it's a bad wine. Um, right. I just know like my limits and kind of my threshold, and that's why I keep to our small, small production. Um, so yeah, I don't know if I, you know, myth wise, I don't know if just because it's mass produced wine doesn't mean it's horrible or, or it's bland, or it's not as great as, as someone like me who kind of specializes in something and only produces five barrels of it. Right. Uh, so that's that's kind of like my take. So I kind of want to be fair to that. Yeah, no, that makes sense. I mean, I feel like you know, I, I've I've met some, you know, I've I've met some winemakers out there. Who I think they're probably in like the 15, 20, 25,000, you know, case production, and it seems like you know they're doing everything pretty straightforward. And like you said, they're not really they don't have to rely on any additives or things to manipulate their wines for the wines to get to the market. Um, but who knows again, right? Like I'm not in the winemaking room. I'm not in the winery. I don't know what's going on back there. So 
again, because just of the vagary sometimes of the terminology, I wonder if there was like a threshold to where like, no, I mean, honestly, if you're making more than 30,000 cases, like you you for sure have to, at some point you're going to have to rely on using these types of additives or things to have a consistent product in the market. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's absolutely. No, I like in the winemaking world, me at 2,100 or sorry, yeah, 1,200 cases, I'm an absolute baby. Like for sure. Like when I say 15, 20, 25,000, that's kind of still considered small, small production in, in the wine yeah. world. Sure. Um, they just maybe have a little more, we're also a small operation. So they may have a little bit more of a, of a bigger team in place to kind of handle that production. So, um, you know, threshold wise, you know, when we're getting up to that 40 to 50,000 case production, that's when I will start label you, labeling you as kind of like that mass producer, larger producer. But again, that's, that's not to say that your wines are mass produced and manipulated and horrible. It's just kind of from a number figure standpoint, that's where I would go and be like, okay, you guys are fairly big is around that right. 40 to 50,000 range. Right. 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 Oh man. Okay. I like, I really want to get into like the, just when people who are making like 1 million cases, like what, what are they doing <laughs> with their wines? It's the majority of the wine market, right? I and mean, that's the reality. It's like the majority of consumption is happening at that level. Right. Like these four or five or six, you know, larger companies that are just pumping out a ton of wine. Yeah. God, it's knows, impressive. God knows what's going into that. Uh, we'll leave that. We'll leave that one there. Um, myth number five. We're going to wrap up with this one. Um, expensive wines are always better than inexpensive wines. And for this one, again, knowing that you kind of understand the economics of what it takes to make a wine, you know, at what point, you know, you're in Paso. I don't know, like how. Well, I have an idea of how, like, the real estate compares to, for example, certain parts of Napa. Right, that's obviously a consideration. Like, I know even if a if a top wine that was made really well, if they're investing in brand new oak barrels at roughly a thousand dollars a pop, that's going to take consideration into, into wine. But maybe you could talk about this myth also in the context of you know anything over an eighty dollar bottle of wine. I mean, there's how much more could they have actually put into that versus now you're investing in a brand or something like this? Yeah, sure. Um, no, it's a great, great question. Great myth. So I come from the belief that that is a myth. Um, but that's because I've also been given a $30, $30, $35, $40 bottle of wine that's been outstanding, in my opinion. Um, you know, I think you, you, you know, you kind of nailed it a little bit from a price standpoint, like when it, you know, you have some guys that really leverage the fact of like, if this is a wine that's coming from like Napa, for example, versus Paso, um, I, I will say that our prices have steadily increased. If you guys are familiar with with possible at all, I remember in 2012 when I like first started, you know, wines were between you know that 40 to 50 dollar range, and now they're 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 well over above 80, um, and, and rightfully so. And we've kind of gained some some traction and recognition for sure. But I know, you know, for a lot of guys that people are in Napa, yes, fruit is more expensive. Um, your production costs are probably more expensive. So that's, that's why you see generally a higher price point when it, when it comes to Napa. But a lot of times price is also inflated because people are used, are leveraging, in my opinion, their name or their winemaker or, or their region. Um, and, and they kind of get away with it, in my opinion. So uh, I, I would advise anybody, you know, if you're looking to impress someone or have this like special occasion, don't necessarily worry about the, the cost or the price of the bottle. Um, you know, I'm, 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 I make wine. Yes, I have my own label, but ultimately I'm a wine geek and I'm a wine nerd at heart. So 
ideally you put any ball in front of me, like, tell me about it. There's got to be a story. There's a story behind every single bottle. Or if you don't know it, let's let's find out some information about this wine. Let's create a story and let's like have like an awesome night and awesome experience. So, um, yeah, I mean, and that's what I would tell people is like, don't be so consumed with with, with price points. You're gonna find a, a difference, a variation for sure, a, a fairly large discrepancy in price. Just California alone, uh, let alone all over the world. Um, but don't get too caught up into it. I would say. Yeah, I'm a big fan of that. I mean, I, when I made my first move into, um, or I guess away from fine dining, and I went to go manage and run a little neighborhood wine shop in, in North Pacific Beach here like six, six, seven years ago. I mean, our price points on retail were, you know, 18 to 50, you know? so And, and so for me, it was like, okay, this is cool. Like there's actually, I'm going from selling these crazy wines at this, you know, uber high-end restaurant to like, I need to find the best bang for my buck, you know, at a really good low price. And there's a ton of stuff out there that's actually representative of the region that it comes from and the style that it should represent. And I think you're absolutely right that people don't need to get, um, you know, so fixated on the price of wine being a delicious wine. Um, Jessica, what do we miss? Do you have anything on like on your end? They're like, hey, I, I wish people knew about this <laughs> or had like this insight into the industry that maybe, you know, they're confusing. Um, they're, they're, they have some confusion around the topic or something like this. Anything come to mind? No, I just, uh, yeah, in conclusion, I would just encourage like, again, like I'm, I'm a wine nerd. I'm, I'm a wine fanatic, fanatic at heart. And um, I think what I do is super cool. I think it's way cooler than, than myself. And uh, I've always just been very fortunate the last few years to be able to do what I love. And um, there's so many rewarding, fulfilling aspects to, to this line of work, as I'm sure like you would agree too, and in, in your line of work. And it's one thing to make wine, but it's another thing to, to kind of share and talk about, about your work and about your craft. And um, just watching people kind of enjoy wine is, is, is just as fulfilling as, as being at a winery and making wine. So um the one thing, um, you know, I got into wine because uh, I met a guy at the right place at the right time that took me in, that that taught me the ropes of winemaking. And that's basically what my goal is every time we interact is I want to provide you with all the knowledge. And I'm kind of an open book to, to all of you guys and vice versa if there's something that you guys want to share with me because I'm open to learning as well. Um, that's kind of the mentality that, that I take with this. And hopefully you've learned a little bit from me tonight and, um, you know, had some fun and drinking some good wine, hopefully. Um, but yeah, so I'm, I'm, I'm always available. I'm an open book and I love to share and it's just been really fun. I love it. Yeah. I think it well, So before we wrap up real quick, one thing I forgot to ask, and I really want to, I think the, talking about stories, right. Before we wrap up, tell us about the labels on your website. Obviously you kind of talk about the region, um, who's involved in the winemaking, but you have a cool little segment about the artists too, which I think is really cool. T- tell us about the labels on the wine, maybe how League of Robes came out and like the different labels that we can find on the different bottlings. Yeah, for sure. So of course the labeling, the, the art, the illustration, it's, it's probably half the battle, especially when it comes to being on a retail shelf. Um, it's the one thing that I 100% cannot take credit for, uh, but a good friend of ours, Anthony Taylor, he currently lives in New York city, but he's asked, he's actually a Scottsdale, uh, Arizona native. Um, and we have some, my husband and I, we have roots in Phoenix. So, um, he is just an artist at work. It's a side gig that he does for us. Um, it's a collaboration. Absolutely. So anytime we you know, we make a wine and we have to create a label. Uh, we get together and he always asks me like, what was your inspiration behind the wine? What was your journey? Uh, any hiccups along the way, any things that you learned, you know, all that, just tell me your story, tell me your journey about this wine. 
and um, also a little bit of messaging, uh, you know, as far as like, what's, what are the characteristics of the wine? Um, you know, what is it supposed to, what, what are we showcasing here? And uh, he basically takes everything that I, that I tell him. It's, so it's a collaboration. He takes everything that I tell him and he basically presents us this illustration of what he grasped from what we talked about. Um, so Rapscallion, um, I, I'm actually English, so I wanted to put a little British heritage in, into the brand a little bit. Rapscallion is an English term that means kind of a rascal scoundrel type of character, um, which I think in a very fun and exciting way kind of represents Rapscallion because um, we've got a lot of layers, we've got some charisma, um, we've got some character in the wine. Hopefully it's very well put together, like a wine should be structurally and very well balanced, but there's a lot going on in the wine, hopefully in a good way, just like a Rapscallion uh, would be. And uh, the illustration, I think, is a, uh, a guy, it's a guy basically hitting on a girl at a bar. If you kind of notice in the background, there's a little bit of a bar setting and mm -hmm. um, the, the female is like totally falling for it. She's got like her hand on her chest and she's like, oh my gosh, I'm, you know, I'm so into you. And so he's just being a little bit of a rapscallion, if you will, uh, a little bit of a ladies man, maybe. But um, yeah, that's kind of the, the story behind the wine and kind of why we actually, so this is the first, this is our flagship wine, just so you know. So our first vintage was 2012. This is the first wine I learned how to make first wine into the LOR family. We actually came up with Rapscallion first before we came up with League of Rogues because we thought it was fitting to get a name for the wine because we thought we would basically be able to generate more ideas off of our wine name as opposed to just starting out with like a winery name. So we came up with Rapscallion first and then League of Rogues, a rogue and, a, and Rapscallion, they're synonymous from their synonymous words. So they basically mean the same thing. So a bunch of rogues um, is, is who we are. So we do five wines. Each wine is kind of represents a, a, a certain character. So we have the absent-minded professor. If you go on our website, the absent-minded professor, the tortured artist, the Countess Rosé. We've got a new Syrah coming out. It's going to be called the Wild Child. So each wine represents a single character, and we're just all part of the League of Rogues umbrella family, if you will. So that's kind of how everything kind of comes together. Amazing. I love it. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah, the labels are awesome. I love the wine. I, I honestly love the wine. I hope that we can get it in front of all these wine club members and people can try it out. Um, we actually have it at Born and Raised, so anybody can come taste it there here in San Diego too all the time. Um, Jessica, thank you so much. I really appreciate your time. Thanks for taking the time to do this. It means a lot. Yeah, it was fun, guys. Always a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thank congratulations on the little one. Um, yeah. yeah, good luck with everything. <laughs> Keep in touch, please. For sure. For sure. Thanks, guys. Thanks for your time. Thanks, Jessica. Thank you. I'm Melissa. Bye. Thanks, Bye. Bye.